0: Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: What do you think of when I say the grand old party? The Democrats, right? I got this question on Quora, and it was, if the GOP stands for Republicans, what's the similar initials for the Democrats' nickname? And it's a great question, and there really is not one, because GOP, or grand old party, refers to the Republican Party, and it comes from a period when they were simply dominating politics, just winning almost every presidential election. That's the period from the Civil War really to the New Deal. During that period, you only had two men that served as Democratic presidents, Woodrow Wilson, and two non-consecutive terms from Grover Cleveland. During the entire 19th century after the Civil War, only Grover Cleveland served as a Democrat. In the White House, Republicans won strings of elections, unprecedented streak. They began calling themselves the Grand Old Party. And so you have that. You know, it's, it's a term that's largely attributed to the Chicago Tribune in an article actually after Grover Cleveland was defeated for re-election. They sung the praises of the returning Grand Old Party. And the reason you use geni- initials is that, you know, newspaper column inches were small. And cartoons, you could fit it into cartoons, you know, on an elephant or something like that, in one of those Thomas Nash cartoons, so. But even though it's attributed to the Chicago Tribune, we see references to it well before that. The Iowa Vindicator, an abolitionist newspaper in 1870, says, the grand old party goes right on overcoming obstacles and winning victories, entirely oblivious that there's even a Democratic party in existence. You know, it's a, that party would have been only 20 years old when the reference is used, and sometimes signal like, hey, you're a grand old party, stop all the bickering. The Republican Party was very fractured in the the 19th century between the half-breed stalwarts, the grant people, the people that wanted corruption, people that wanted reform, liberal Republicans. You know, so you see references like in newspapers, Republicans cannot afford to be fighting one another. We ought to reserve our strength and rally like a band of brothers around the grand old party of liberty. And just one quick point on that. The term democracy was used for the Democratic Party up into the Civil War. It's kind of like a regal term for the party, and that kind of lies, there lies the answer to the question. It used to be referred to in such terms. In fact, we have references. Here's the Pennsylvania Agitator, another abolitionist newspaper prior to the Civil War that says, if the grand old Democratic Party is only accommodating enough to dissolve the union, it will be a great relief to the free north. And a pro-democratic newspaper in Wisconsin used the same term. However, we may differ with some regard regards to the present war and desire its vigorous prosecution. We know only the democracy and the grand old party that has ever battled under its banners for popular rights and the privileges allowed by the Constitution. So there you have it. The term grand old party was at one time used to reference the Democratic Party, which had a longer history. Republicans co-opted it and... As they began a period of prominence in politics, they took the turn. And that's the story. I don't know how well the story's known. I mean, listeners to this program will know the story. That in 1980, at the convention in Detroit, the GOP convention there was talk of the Ford forces and the Reagan forces joining together. And Reagan wasn't opposed to it in the beginning. But as negotiations ensued, it turned out what Ford wanted was very much a kind of co-presidency, not just to be vice president under Reagan, but to have a kind of co-presidency and to be able to weigh in on a lot of decisions, particularly foreign policy decisions. He wanted, for instance, most likely to keep uh, or to retain Kissinger as Secretary of State, or at least in a high-ranking foreign policy position. That idea was pretty much dead. I don't think Reagan mind perhaps running with uh, on a unity ticket with Ford. Uh would have been a little weird running with a former president, but Reagan was nobody's VP, and the minute that Ford was kind of worming into a co-presidency type proposal. There was no deal. And they found in George H.W. Bush, a moderate who was more on the Nixon, Ford, that side of things. Ryan T. Richardson writes on the fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. Bruce, interesting thought experiment. In the past, you've said that without a Teddy presidency, Theodore Roosevelt, there would be no FDR. Had Reagan and Ford worked out a deal for vice president in 1980, would there have been a George H.W. Bush presidency? And if no H.W. Bush presidency, would there have been a W presidency? And if no W presidency, without the 2008 narrative of political dynasties, Bush Clinton, Bush Clinton, would we have had an Obama presidency? Well, thanks, Ryan Richardson. That is alt history on steroids, but it's grabbable, at least particularly in the beginning point. I don't know if I could take it from Ford to Obama, but at least in the beginning point. So yeah, no, obviously if Ford did become VP, there wouldn't be an H.W. Bush vice presidency. because Ford would have been vice president. Now, I don't think it would have lasted very long. I don't think Ford's vice presidency would have lasted into 1984. I think on both sides, they would have um, had little patience with each other. Ford had been president, now to go to being vice president. you know, And Reagan, I think, really wanted to get on with a radical transformation of things and not have to negotiate. So it does open up the vice presidential choice in 1984. I don't know if they pick George H.W. Bush at that point. Yes, he did run in the primaries against Reagan. I suppose his name would be out there. But it's possible he could have taken it in '84, And then we have the same chain of events you're talking about. But let's say there is no H.W. Bush presidency. Yeah, then I don't think George W. Bush is a factor. I think the name came from, obviously, he was definitely a presidential son and wasn't doing very much, even when his father was president. So without his father, I don't think you see a a G.W. Bush presidency at all. And then I kind of could take your point. It's a little bit far out, but... um, yeah, 2008 had a lot to do with like, do we, all right, we just had two Bushes. Do we want another Clinton? And that helped Obama in the primary. So, really hard to go that far out. You know, Bob Dole had been the nominee in 1976. So, maybe in 1984, he becomes the nominee. Howard Baker, senator from Tennessee, known moderate. Maybe that's a guy.
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What is the most disastrous defeat that any Army, Navy, or Air Force has ever had? This I was asked on Quora, but i has so many answers. But I'll say the Battle of Tsushima. It ends the Russo-Japanese War. You know, war is declared in 1904. The entire Western fleet that's in the Baltic is transported around South Africa and all the way to the Pacific. It's stopping in all of these ports. So everybody knows this fleet is coming. And they meet the Japanese in the Pacific. The Japanese are totally coordinating their ships with wireless, and the Russians are not, and, and are completely routed. The Japanese win a huge victory and sink hundreds of tons into the Pacific Ocean. It had a kind of the whole world is watching effect. It ends the Russo-Japanese War in terms in Japanese favor. Those negotiations are concluded, by the way, in America at Portsmouth. So Theodore Roosevelt plays a huge role in these negotiations in ending the war. And it kind of establishes the American president as a diplomatic figure and America as a player in international affairs. Dan Lee writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, the fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. This is back from August. I was listening to the Washington Post Constitutional Podcast earlier today, and the episode was essentially a history of advances of women throughout the life of the Constitution. There is considerable discussion of the proposed Equal Rights Amendment, and this led me to wonder... Does the Equal Rights Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment really cover all of the same things that were already included in the ERA? Functionally, what would change? Or what would have changed? Thanks, Dan. Uh, This is the text of the ERA, and it did come very close to being passed in the early 80s. If it were not for a counter-movement of conservatives, Philip Shafley being a key one here, it came pretty close. It had a lot of bipartisan support. Here's the text. Section 1, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. Section 2, the Congress shall have full power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of the article. Section 3, the amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. Pretty simple, but... I think it would have raised the profile of gender in most cases extremely, lowered the threshold for intervention on the part of judges, uh, make a clear line in issues, the most notably being sex discrimination. 14th is a fairly cloudy law, and it refers to persons and citizens. Um, The late Justice Scalia, for instance, in an interview said he didn't think the 14th applied to sex discrimination at all because it had referenced that all persons were equal. For even a textualist conservative, if you're passing that ERA, it's in black and white letters. Clear, loud signal in the text as to what's to be protected. What's on the other side? Well, there would have been more lawsuits. There's no doubt about that. Um, The negative would have been suits, tying up courts um one could argue that i'm i'm sure if we were sitting here with a business person they wouldn't be happy about the potential of that and what it would mean to their human resources and what kind of staff they'd have to devote to that or their legal that's that's the negative the positive might have been that a chain reaction of better practices over these years in terms of discrimination because Companies, agencies would have been afraid of lawsuits that now have a constitutional force. On the West Wing, this TV show, the Speaker of the House took over the presidency for a period. Was this accurate and would they be considered a full president? Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah, that TV show, you're talking about the West Wing TV show written by Aaron Sorkin or at least the initial parts written by Aaron Sorkin and then completed by Wells and Lawrence O'Donnell and others in season five where President Walker, who is played by John Goodman, takes over. There was no vice president. The vice president had tendered his resignation. That was accepted. He's no longer VP. They're looking for VP candidates when the president felt he needed to utilize the 25th Amendment because his daughter had been kidnapped, and he didn't feel he could make rational decisions needed to be made for the good of the nation. So he writes a letter exercising the clause in the 25th Amendment where now the speaker becomes president until the time that the president submits another letter saying, okay, he can now resume the office. officially." In the 25th Amendment, it is called the acting president. This is a term that we long ago gave up on. Uh, there was a lot of people who thought that during uh, John Tyler's presidency, when he took the presidency over, presidency of William Henry Harrison, that he was merely the acting president. But now we use this term in the 25th Amendment. It kind of brought that term back. I would say in every way they are a full president. I think the key thing to understand is this. It can only be one president. It's a unitary executive. Under the Constitution, they thought about that. Many governors had, you know, if states and colonies had advisory councils that kind of became a plural executive. It's not so with the President of the United States, a single person. So only one person has it at any one time. Uh, They give an order, it must be followed if it's constitutional. Would history consider them full? It's never happened, so we'd have to see how history treats it. But my sense would be that it would be. People would be obliged to mention that speaker who had become president on the list. People that like to do that. They're still bringing up that David Rice Atchison who really wasn't president, but they say he was president for a day and all of that. Ward Batty writes, On the fans of My History Could Beat Up Your Politics, might this storm and the results of it help Puerto Rico gain statehood. And I think it would not for a simple reason, and that's two senators. And, uh, you know, the politics of the Senate has been responsible for creating states and for states not happening uh, throughout history. Republicans in the period after the Civil War used this. I mean, you really start before the Civil War with the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the idea that that would generate Senate uh, seats. There's always been this battle. Uh, both Dakotas being created, the Colorado Territory, the Wyoming Territory being turned into states. This is an attempt to create more Senate seats.
0: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez,